I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. I'm here to have conversations. Real, honest, authentic conversations. The kind we aren't supposed to have anymore. I interview anyone I find interesting, from left to right to everywhere in between. I work independently in order to have the freedom to say what I believe and speak to whoever I want. But with independence comes a lot of work and some insecurity. I rely on donors and patrons, so individuals, to support my work, so I can continue to do what I do. Please consider becoming a subscriber on Patreon, that's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy, or you can become a supporter of this podcast directly on anchor.fm by clicking the support button on the Same Drugs podcast page. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm. On today's show, I'm speaking with Mike Solana, Vice President at Founders Fund and the organizer of Hereticon, a conference for thought crime, which I had the great pleasure of attending in Miami in January. Thank you so much for joining me on The Same Drugs. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me. Uh, how are you doing these days? I mean, I haven't seen you since since Hereticon. How was the uh, fallout <laughs> of all that? There was none. Um, I mean, there was some, but it, it was super mild. I think actually the weird thing about Hereticon was um, I, I expected there to be... When I first released the idea of Hereticon, it, it, there was a lot more, I think, fury about it. Um, but that was years ago. That was before COVID. That, and mm-hmm. then I, we had to sort of postpone it. That, it happens two, two years later. And and in that time, I think that culture has shifted somewhat or it, it, it had shifted somewhat. And while still there was some blowback, it was less. I think people were excited, just more excited about the idea than anything else. Mm-hmm. Just the idea of getting people together, uh, sort of having this conversation that maybe about ideas that you weren't supposed to have a conversation about. It's like, I think that that most people at this point, you know, five years into the culture war or whatever it is, have something that they're afraid to talk about that they don't think they should be afraid to talk about. Right. It does seem like things have shifted a little bit. I mean, I've probably been most involved with the gender identity conversation over the years. And to Mm -hmm. me, that's a conversation that has really started to open up and more people are starting to challenge those ideas, which was like totally unacceptable, you know, two or three years ago. It's still, of course, very controversial to talk about these things, but it seems like more people are comfortable talking about it. I wonder, so do you see that happening across the kind of culture war conversation where people are starting to feel more comfortable talking about like heterodox ideas, I suppose? I think so. I think gender is a really interesting one because in a lot of ways, I mean, gender is, it's like, the Rosetta Stone of all of this. I feel like the, like the trans debate in, sp- in particular seems to be the the issue that, I mean, it's like the purest culture war issue. That's the thing that gets people the the angriest. And that is the, that is the topic I think that is the most confusing. I think that's the topic with the most sort of new words that people have to keep up with. Um, and that is the topic that right now, yeah, I feel that you are kind of roughly allowed to say, Things that you were certainly not allowed to say, you're, allowed to, you're certainly allowed to say things today that you weren't allowed to say a few years ago, but I think people are still afraid to talk about it. So for example, I mean, I'm, I have all sorts of opinions on gender that I don't, I don't typically get into just because I think there are plenty of people talking about that. You know, I'm not going to be the most eloquent one and the rate of just like, or, or the exposure is just, the risk is, is too great. And, and what, what is, the, what is really the point? I mean, I'm not like, you know, going to shy away from anything I really believe in, but that stuff is just like, you think to yourself, it's not necessarily worth it. I mean, for example, gender queer as a concept bothers me. Like, I, I don't think it's a valid concept. And, no um, <laughs> and, and I, and especially, I think, I mean, let's just talk about gender queer for a minute, actually, because it's not real. <laughs> like, it's just, that's not a thing. I think about this a lot in the context of not like, Oh, I'm going to pick on these poor genderqueer people and I just don't understand what it's like. No, I'm just listening to the language and it's like, I'm supposed to believe that you don't feel like a man or a woman. Got it. Okay. 
So now what I need you to tell me is, can you describe the sensation of being a man? Just describe it. Describe it in your, in your own words. If you could break it down for me and help me understand that, that would be great. You can't because like, I can't do that either. I am a man. I can't describe the sensation of being a man. So the concept of like not knowing, not feeling like a man, I don't know what that means. And, and when it becomes, to use their words, problematic is uh, where it becomes really problematic is in the context of, I think, gay people. Um, well, for me, that's just my person. I'm gay. And so I'm like, it sounds like, I mean, really sort of gender normative, actually. It sounds like what we're rebutting against are like gender sort of stereotypes. And the idea here behind this is like, if you don't conform to certain gender stereotypes, then you're not actually the gender. It, it sounds extremely right wing in a, in a, in a way, uh, it, at least in the way that it sounded back in the nineties when I was kind of becoming aware of the world. And um, I think ultimately like the whole thing is really regressive and unhealthy and um, it sounds really nice and accepting, but if you just follow it to its natural conclusions, it's the end, not of like the traditional right-wing stuff. It's the end of like gender liberation and things like this. That's what it's actually the end of. It's, I think it reinforces those stereotypes. So it bothers me and I want to talk about it. I think I might, I'm going to end up talking about it probably. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll probably, I guess I just did talk about it, but I, I'll probably write something about it eventually. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you too. The concepts in and of themselves are totally illogical and the people who the proponents of the concepts aren't able to explain their own terms and concepts. So regardless of the fact, I agree with you. I think these ideas are totally homophobic. I think they're super regressive and sexist. I think they reinforce gender stereotypes in a way that like, you know, feminists in particular were fighting against for many years. Um, I think it like almost totally destroys the concept of homosexuality because yes. it, it challenges the idea that you're allowed to be same sex attracted because that's somehow homophobic. And then if there's no such thing as male and female, what's same sex attracted anyway? Um, but yeah, like, I mean, I, I've asked similar things. Like, I'm like, okay, you're a woman. What does that mean? You feel like a woman. What does that mean? And they what can't it describe mean? it, but I yeah. certainly can't. I have no idea what, what I, it feels like to be a woman. I don't know. <laughs> what I think so what I have empathy for is if if someone really believes that they're in the wrong body and it gives them enough discomfort that they want to hurt themselves and so some sort of physical transition just making themselves they think look more like a woman or a man if that if that alleviates some mental distress, great, go for it. I'm also happy to use language that makes you feel more comfortable, but I, I don't like when I'm supposed to believe things about myself that they couldn't possibly know. For example, like, like what it feels like, what I feel like in my own body as a man. And I think about myself as a young person, again, to go back to this, the sort of the gay context, it's like one thing that a lot of men do is have relationships with women. And so as a young gay kid, had I been told like, Hey, you're doing this thing. You're into guys. That's like a very, that's a woman thing. Maybe you're a woman. Like, do you feel different than other guys? I definitely felt different than other guys. You know, I did. Uh, do you think you fit in with other guys or do you maybe fit in with more with girls back then when I was younger, I had more female friends. Now I have more guy friends, but like had I had someone sort of, coaching me down the road of weird gender stuff, I think that I could easily have, have experimented with gender identity. stuff. I, I could easily have become open to maybe trying out some, had I gone through any sort of early childhood transition, it would have ruined my life. And, mm. and that is, that's why I'm like more and more, I'm like, ah, should I get involved in this debate? Because like, I, I do, I know for a fact there are confused young gay boys right now who are like, wait a minute, like, like, what am I supposed to be? And they're looking for cues from adults on what to be. When I was growing up, there were no cues. There was nothing out there. So you were sort of alone, but that also meant there were no really negative ideas that were kind of being, being shoved at me. I had to figure it out myself. And, um, and no, I mean, I mean, I think that I probably share a lot in common with a lot of, uh, I, I see lesbians talk about this more than I see gay guys talk about this. And um, whenever they talk, I mean, I, I tend to have a lot, I, I agree. I'm sort of on that side of things. Yeah. Yeah. Lesbians have been talking about this and getting super attacked over it. And I feel really bad for young 
gay people. Um, I feel bad for girls who are growing up and instead of feeling like they can come out as lesbian, they have to come out as queer or as a boy or as trans or pansexual or like any other term except for lesbian because lesbians like not a cool thing to be but anything else any of these other vague concepts that don't really make sense um are trendy and it in it, it is it's leading young women down this path towards transition without them fully understanding the the consequences of that mm -hmm. i think um but moving on from this gender identity topic i mean i'm i'm curious to know what i well what what were some of the important meaningful things that came out of hereticon i mean you helped to organize this conference was this your idea was hereticon your idea yeah yeah okay yeah i mean i had the idea years ago um man now it would have been like probably like 4 years ago i think um i was just in i was in new orleans at the time I was scouting out locations for another summit that I do, uh, just like our, our CEO summit. And uh, everything was big there and exciting. And I thought, man, I wish I could do something bigger to fill this place up, you know, to be worthy of the city of New Orleans. And the idea of a, of a conference where people are banned from other conferences just kind of got in my head. And I thought, oh, that's funny and fun. And um, maybe maybe that. And then I just started thinking more and more about it. And the more that I thought about it, the more it sort of came together. And, uh, and what it, what it, what it turned into is, is more of a conference for, I would say people who are not necessarily invited to other conferences for, mm -hmm. for, uh, let's say like biologists who, because of their sort of strange or unpopular biology ideas are not invited to biology conferences or whatever, or your typical computer computer programmers or AI researchers or people who, who are not the mainstream in their field. So it ended up being something where like most people there would not be, you know, offended by anything that anybody was saying because they're not experts in that field. But if you're an expert in the field, maybe it's harder for you to, to sort of speak up in, in a, uh, uh, surrounded by your peers. And so you got a lot of interesting people. I mean, it was everything from, I mean, we had, we did, we had, we had all sorts of uh, biologists there and uh, evolutionary psychologists and sex workers. We had UFO people. Uh, we had anti-materialists, people talking about witchcraft. Um, we had people dissenting in all sorts of things from uh, religion to politics, of course. But I, I was more excited about uh, the the really subversive ideas that people have more access to, generally speaking. So, so for me, the anti-materialism one was was really the one that I was excited about because I think that you know we were inviting a really cerebral crowd of people together, a lot of scientists, and um, I think that what a lot of them pride themselves on is, you know, what does the data say? But Charles Fort, this guy who was writing at the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, I believe, he wrote a book called The Book of the Damned, where he identified this class of data called damned data. Damned data is compelling data that scientists won't look at for some reason. And he had a whole host of things that he, that he would talk about, everything from what were UFOs, but he didn't... Um, that word had not been coined yet, uh, but he was talking about UFOs to uh, rains of frogs and snakes, literally when, when suddenly a town would be inundated with a, a flood of snakes from the sky uh, to extrasensory perception and things like this. Um, and yeah, I just wanted to play with that and explore, explore that and, and sort of like trigger the people who we're making fun of the people who were too triggered for, and, uh, and, and there is some interesting data. So for ESP, there's, there's all sorts of interesting data to look out for UFOs at this point. I, I don't know if you would call it data so much as evidence and it's compelling and it, it's at least interesting and worth talking about. I think at this point, just because um, the reporting has been so extensive and the implications just of the reporting alone are, I think, very significant. What you're talking about, government is involved the meet our largest media institutions are involved there's a story there even if there's no story there like if, if there's no story there that would be a story right yeah it, it has there has been some pretty compelling evidence recently around ufos and the existence of ufos do you think that that's something that's becoming more acceptable to talk about like do you think people who are talking oh, yeah. about like ufos are like less likely to be considered yeah. lunatics 
I mean, when I thought of getting for Hereticon, I thought that this was like a pretty shocking thing. And in fact, I, I, I had written a little bit about it and I was made fun of for it by people who are now like, it's like one of the things that they talk about to be edgy. And um, <laughs> okay. I that's a bit of, annoying, but okay. <laughs> but uh, you're, yeah, by the time Hereticon happened, I was like, damn, like no one even cares about this anymore. It is like old hat. And there's no one who doesn't think this is worth talking about. It's like, yeah. it's not controversial at all. No, it's, it's completely normalized. And what's really weird about it is like, like, I mean, what has come of it? Nothing. People are like, yeah, I guess they're real, but so what? And that's like, wait, no, that's a huge (laughs) deal. Like we should be doing something with this information. So Uh, anticlimactic, right? Putting more money into it, something, but people are just like, turns out like if, what happens if everyone believes UFOs are real, what happens is like, nothing happens. No one cares. It doesn't matter. They just move on with their day. (laughs) <laughs> do you think there are any ideas right now that are still like you know that we can't talk about that we aren't allowed to talk about that are too confer- confer- uh, controversial um to discuss um considering uh, so much has changed since you know when you first started planning this this event this conference i think that there are always ideas that bubble up again in in fields there there are things that you can't talk about field by field that would probably seem mundane to the average person if you're talking about uh, like, I don't know, genetic engineering or um, uh, astrophysics or whatever. Like they all have their own. Like I talked to a guy who doesn't believe that dark matter exists and it's like that that's controversial in his field. But like who – I don't care about that. Do you? Like we don't have – I don't have an opinion on that. So <laughs> I, I think there are a lot – there are always going to be those things. Um, in terms of popular culture right now, like – I think maybe one of the the interesting things that's happening is that there are all of these things that you couldn't say. For example, I hate to go back to gender because we sort of moved on, but I mean the trans swimmer stuff uh, or the trans athlete stuff. That was something that you couldn't talk about a few years ago and and, and it was so extreme that I didn't have much of a sense of who even believed it. I, I didn't. I, I didn't know how popular my own opinions on it were. And, and I think now the weird thing that you're seeing is that actually like people are overwhelmingly on the side of like, this is crazy. Um, but the ideas are still being institutionally suppressed, um, which is interesting. I don't know quite what to do with that. That's how like the, the, the sort of like hereticon concept has evolved in it's evolving in my mind because the, the weird thing is it's not so much that you're not allowed to say things, popularly in popular culture, or you're, you're not allowed to say things because, you know, the crowd is, is mad at you for saying them. It's more like the crowd is not allowed to voice the crowd's opinion. It's, it's being mm-hmm. policed by a, a very sort of minority opinion um, in some dimensions in, in the gender dimension, for sure. I think along, I think crime is, is another issue where uh, the popular opinion is sort of policed by a minority opinion. Um in terms of like popular stuff, I think, I mean, these are things that maybe I don't have any, I don't really have much of a, 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 a well-formed opinion on it. I don't write about them a lot, but I think race is just like the ultimate, um, it's the ultimate clusterfuck conversation where people are going to be mad. Um, and uh, I think, I think intelligence is a really important one, like n- general intelligence, the concept of intelligence, IQ testing, uh, education, the the sort of what is always going to be controversial is the concept that some people are naturally like better than other people. And we just value intelligence so highly that when we hear there's natural intelligence, what we hear is there are people who are naturally better than other people. And, um, you know, it's really controversial. <laughs> you can't say that. Uh, but it has all these really serious implications. For example, in, in our, in our school systems, um, you know, how are we going to teach, how are we going to teach kids with, uh, more aptitude in academics rather than less and, and whatnot. Um, yeah. I mean, we are not all equal. That's the reality. And yeah, we're not. I mean, we're just, we all have different skills and we look different. One thing I, I wish we could talk more about is the, the quote privilege of beauty. Um, like obviously hotter people get everything handed to them. It's just like a <laughs> fact. I don't know why we pretend it's not true. Like the, it is a powerful thing when someone attractive the, the, the most attractive person in a room, I mean, that's, you, you get a lot out of that. And, um, 
it's like more attractive people are more successful in terms of dollars. Like we, we, we know this uh, and we can't talk about it. It's funny. You, you can't talk about it because to talk about it is immediately to raise the question of whether or not you yourself think that you're attractive um, or not. Right. And both of the, those things are bad. You, you, to say that you are attractive is offensive. It's to imply that, you know, you're more attractive than other people to say that you're not attractive is embarrassing. So how do you even have the conversation? And the fact that it's so loaded implies that it's so powerful. Like it's it's clearly the most important thing or yeah. it's up it is very far up there. Well, and what's interesting is that we've tried to, I mean, not you and I per se, but <laughs> in the culture, we've tried to force attraction onto people, so we've tried to incorporate diversity and inclusivity into attractiveness and objectification and sexualization. So there's this trend now where in, you know, a lot of fatter or even like more obese people, for example, I'm seeing them in in clothing ads, like they're modeling. um, And there's also this like sort of self-objectification trend where, you know, bigger women are self-objectifying on the internet because they want to be viewed as sexualized and objectified in the same way that traditionally, you know, more, you know, thinner, more, I don't, it's hard to even talk about this because I'm like, no, it's true. I mean, conventionally attractive, I suppose is what you yeah. would say. And it's like, it's like the idea that, and they've done it with the, the trans thing also, where they're trying to sort of force this idea that, men who are heterosexual should therefore be attracted to trans women because, you know, trans women are women as so it goes and vice versa. And it's like, I keep, I mean, attraction is such a, you can't force yourself to be attracted to somebody you're not attracted to. You can't like find somebody beautiful who you don't find beautiful, but the left and progressives have started behaving as though you can. Yeah. This is, uh, I noticed for me, when I first started paying very close attention to the culture war stuff was when the very first um, not wanting to have sex with a trans person is transphobia conversation started. There was a YouTube controversy that I followed a while ago. And what was interesting to me was that it cut across uh, sexual orientation lines. So to, to me, at least, clearly it did. The idea that uh, if you are a gay man, you should be willing to have sex with a man, a, a man with a vagina like that. That or if you're a straight man, you should be not willing, but like it should be you should be completely neutral on the question of whether or not as a straight man, the woman you're with has a the woman you're going to be sleeping with has a penis or not. And it's like, okay, that is just that's crazy. Um, Of course, that's going to be an issue that is you're talking about. This is this is hardwired into people. This is evolution. This is it's insane to me, not only that we're having this conversation, but that it's we're having it in in such a, an aggressive way where it's not just like, have you considered that maybe you might want to have sex with this? Other? It's like, if you're not willing, you are a bad person. Um, and yeah, it, it's like, you are really at this point trying to, trying to control what people find sexually attractive and, and, and then in, in a sense who they, who they date. And um, I'm just never on the side of the people who are trying to tell other people who to have sex with. That's just like, that's one of my laws. That's just like right up there. Like you, you can't, you can't tell other people who they're allowed to have a relationship with or who they should want to have a relationship with. It's not how love works and it's not how sexual attraction works. And, um, and really like the people who've been on this, uh, on this side of the fence have always been wrong long-term. They always lose. I mean, you're talking about, this is the very similar arguments that people made when it came to like interracial couples and things like this, like to, to, to ban them from happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, it's not, <clears throat> I don't mean to imply that like people aren't attracted to people who are bigger or even obese or whatever. And like attraction and love are very complicated. Like people are attracted to other people for all sorts of reasons. It isn't just about pure like physical attractiveness. Like there might be somebody standing in front of me who is objectively a very hot, attractive person that, that I don't want to have sex with or I'm not into. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's this idea that you can sort of, that you can force it, that you can politicize it. And ironically, 
I think that can stem a little bit from this idea that came out of feminism where everything is socialized, you know, everything is nurture versus nature. And I myself, like admittedly kind of went along with that ideology for quite some time until relatively recently in my grand career in feminism um, to be like, okay, no, evolution is like a real thing. But when you ingrain into people this idea that you can be taught to find certain things attractive and you can be taught to behave in specific ways and that that supersedes evolution and nature and, you know, sort of uh, hardwired evolutionary biology, um, I think then it becomes easier to think that you can kind of reverse all that. And so therefore you can force people or teach people to be attracted to people that they don't inherently find attractive, I suppose. Yeah. Or to stop being attracted to people that you are attracted to, you know, right. not, not, it, the, the argument works exactly the same way. So, I mean, if you are, you know, it's the 1950s and you're uh, a white man and you fall in love with a black woman, it's just like, well, stop, stop being, that, that was the argument back then. It's like, don't do it. You, right. could, you could just not, or if you were a gay man, uh, even today, I mean, I right. grew up hearing that. Like You could just not be gay. You can just teach yourself to be heterosexual instead. Teach yourself to do it. And like, I actually don't know. Listen, I think that that whole topic is probably, I mean, it's so politicized that I'm not entirely sure what data I can trust, but I know that there, there's, my attraction has been around forever. I mean, there, there, there were pieces of it when I was a little kid, like no one taught me to be gay. I didn't pick it up from the internet, you know, at age five or whatever, when I started having like my first little cute little kid crush on men, like that, that has always sort of been in me. And, um, and I think that, you know, never say never, I'm sure there's some crazy way to, to hardwire people to want certain things, but it sounds like pretty dystopian, honestly, when you, when you get down to it. Yeah, well, I I don't think you should strive towards that. I mean, there are like, you know, there is nurture in there as well, you know, like, and obviously trends happen in terms of what we find attractive or what heterosexual men find attractive in women and vice versa. And, you know, I do think that you can sort of like train your brain to be turned on by certain things through like... I don't know, you know, like watching certain kinds of pornography too much and so on and so forth. And I think fetishes can come out of somewhere, but I don't know the science around that. So I shouldn't be like speaking to that with complete certainty. Um, But in any case, I do. I mean, this is obviously a really hard topic. I haven't talked about this topic very much and I wasn't actually planning to talk about it with you. It just kind of came up. So I don't think I'm articulating my views on it very well. But I I know that I wonder about the porn stuff myself. Uh, You know, I was always super libertarian about it and. And I'm still libertarian about it in terms of people, I think who, if you want to do it, okay. The, the question, I mean, I don't think it's morally okay. I, I think, and I wouldn't advise anyone to, I think it's you, all I have is my own personal experience in the world. And, and my personal experience is like that kind of thing would make me hate myself. And so I would not advise other people to do that sort of thing with their life. However, um, the thing that's more concerning to me now because I think it's so, it's just not talked about at all. I mean, the question of whether or not you should do porn, everyone's like, oh yeah, don't do that. But the question of whether or not you should watch porn is seen as like, well, who cares? It doesn't matter. And and I wonder what that does to you. Uh, I do. Like more and more, I wonder. I, I, and specifically in terms of what you were just saying, like, like does it get, I don't think you can change sort of like huge things in, inside of yourself in terms of like, even like who you're attracted to and, and who you fall in love with and things like that. But in terms of just like, like things like smaller things and behaviors inside of bed. Like I do think that just persistent watching over and over and over and over again in a state of sexual arousal, which is a state of, uh, I talked to a hypnotist who called it a state of, um, Oh, what did he call it? They have this cool hypnotist word for it. Trance. Mm. You know, a, a lot of, there, there are schools of hypnosis that, that use sexual arousal because it, it is very similar to a trance state. Um, it's like your, your mind kind of, maybe opens up a little bit more right at that moment. Um, but I don't know. What do I know? Yeah, I, have this, I mean, assumptions. I feel like it's something that we should look more into. I would love to see real data on this. I would love, I would love 
people to take it seriously, throw lots of money at it. Cause I think it's a, it's a pretty big part of our culture at this point. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something that makes sense to me that if you were, you know, if you were watching something while you were having orgasms that you could totally like rewire your brain to be turned on by this thing, because that connection's being made over and over and over again. Um, but it's, yeah, I mean, I, that's a controversial thing to talk about. I personally think that porn use isn't good for people. And I think the industry is mostly exploitative and full of a lot of troubled people and oftentimes young women who probably don't want those images on the internet for all of eternity and have no choice in the matter. But um, it's definitely, I mean, there's sort of contradictory evidence, I guess, you know, some people do argue that um, watching pornography will you know, sort of shape what you're attracted to and what you're into and that the more you watch it, you know, you need to watch more and more extreme stuff, more and more graphic stuff, more and more violent stuff because it sort of functions like a drug or a drug addiction where what got you off at first is sort of getting, it's not working in the same way. So you're seeking out something more extreme. And then of course there's people who argue that that's not true at all. (laughs) So yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a big conversation. I mean, sex is just something that people are always going to look at through the lens of their broader values, and, and so it's it's so hard to have an honest conversation about about it ever. Um, you know, people are always taking that next step. You know, well, we're talking about we're talking about uh, what porn does to you, but really what we're talking about is how we're going to treat sex workers. And that's what they're bringing to the table. And so they want to sort of say, no, there's nothing wrong with it because they don't want you to hurt sex workers or, um, or, or no, there's, there's definitely something wrong with it because you, you want to ban sex workers like that. Like there, people are coming to it with such strong opinions. Um, yeah. And yeah. And there's the, the free speech issue comes into play. So a lot of people will, will argue very strongly against, essentially any criticisms of the sex trade and the porn industry and say, well, you're, you're criticizing pornography and you're saying people shouldn't watch porn. So therefore you're saying you want to ban porn, which is censorship. And I support free speech and therefore pornography is fine and all pornography should exist and we shouldn't be critical of it. Right. So anyway, I wanted to talk to you about the free speech issue. So perhaps that's a good segue. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I know, like, you know, I know you're really involved in and invested in the issue of free speech in general and free speech on social media. And I'm curious to know why. Why are you concerned about what social media companies are doing in particular around what they allow and don't allow in terms of conversation and information? Um. So why I mean I think that everyone should be invested in the question of what you can and cannot say. Uh, you know those are rules being set in place by people in positions of power to maintain power. And uh, you know, that could be great if you happen to agree with whoever's in power, but if you don't, that is already a problem and it's only be, it's only going to become more of a problem. The internet kind of obliterated all of the old rules and ways. And so for about 20 years, 15 years, uh, things were, were free and crazy and they were the wild west. And you had the emergence of all of these new voices online and you still do because they're every time censorship sort of approaches, uh, new apps and things pop up like mushrooms. And, um, but it is this sort of ongoing chase between the sort of authoritarian type people and the, and the, and the freedom oriented people and the freedom oriented people are always losing. They've always been losing throughout history. They lose. Um, America's this really crazy aberration. The internet is a crazy aberration. And, and we came up in a, in a time of total freedom in a way that, and, and we just thought it was normal. We thought it was like, Oh, this is obviously the future is just complete is complete liberation of information and you can say whatever you want and no one can stop you. Uh, but people are already being stopped. It's going to continue. And I, I think increasingly this conversation is being, is being brought to 
to the courts or it's being threatened to be brought to the courts. You, you, you're, we're talking about legislation already. Any legislation that cuts across the First Amendment will be brought to the courts and then it will be determined um, and, and on any number of topics. Uh, and, and it's sort of hard to know how it's going to land, how it's going to end up in the court with the exact confines are going to be until something presents itself. But eventually it's going to happen and we're going to have new rules that, that govern what we can say. Already you're seeing weird rules. First of all, America is the only country that has a real free speech. Um, every other country has some crazy set of rules governing it. And up in Canada, I have to look into this right now. I've only looked at headlines, honestly, but it seems like there's something happening with with uh, with Trudeau in terms of uh, like handing out journalistic uh, credentials, essentially, that will he is then going to ha have a. Uh, actually, it seems like you know about this, so I'm just going to let you take it away. Well, he's trying to pass a couple bills. His liberal party is trying to pass a couple bills, and one of those is like an online hate speech bill, which would regulate what anybody, you know, individuals or journalists or media companies or whatever can say on the internet. And they would do that, I believe. I mean, we'd have to see how it played out when it happens, plays out when it happens, because I think these bills probably will pass, um, unfortunately. Um, that, you know, the the social media companies, so the platform like Facebook, YouTube, whatever it is, would be fined by the um, regulatory body, the CRTC in Canada, um, if a person violates these hate speech laws. And of course, you know, what's considered hate speech is determined by the government. It, right. would, be yeah, panel, it would be according to Justin Trudeau and the Liberal Party, what would qualify as hate speech, which would be essentially many of the things that I talk about. <laughs> yeah, dissent is hateful. Uh, and of course, it sounds hateful if you're in a position of power and someone's saying some stuff that you don't agree with. Uh, this is just a... This has been a problem. The, the, what kills me about this is it's like it's not a new – these are not new problems. These are not new questions. These are things that people have tried to parse forever, even just the broader, like the highest level question, which is what is true? Because so many of these conversations reduce to this like, no, we have to stop misinformation. Obviously, there's truth and there's not truth and we should just – uh, clearly, we should ban the things that are not true, but then no one can provide you a definition of truth. And when you raise that question, you're treated like you're some pedantic asshole, like, like, oh, you're trying to have some academic conversation about this, but really we're trying to do God's work here. It's like, it's not academic. It's like found, it's, it is, I would say fundamental to the question of, of, of what you're going to do to stop misinformation is determining what you know, proper information is. What is truth? If you can't answer that question, then what are we even talking about right now? And, and because they can't answer the question, I'm like, okay, well then, then, you know, they clearly can't answer it. They don't want to talk about it. So what are we really talking about? You have to wonder what is the conversation really about? And it, it just, you know, I'm tired of thinking, you know, sounding like a conspiracy theorist or something, because I don't even think it is a conspiracy. I think that the average person just kind of has a feeling that they want to stop people from talking about things that are, that are bad as a and they kind of, they, I think in their mind, they think of bad as, you know, things that make them feel bad and, and they don't see it. They don't even see themselves as, as these censors, as the oppressive uh, party in the room. They are. And, and so you have to kind of remind them of that and you have to push back as hard as you can. And the reason I care about this is because we are right now, I mean, the internet is very new and, and this digital substrate of human existence is, is we're determining what the rules are going to be forever. What we're finding out now is that what happens on the internet has very serious real world effect. It shapes everything in the physical world. Uh, it, you know, in, from the, the small scale to the, to, the, to the scale of the president of the United States, you know, what's happening on Twitter actually matters. We used to joke about tweets. Oh, tweets can't change the world. Like, like all you Twitter warriors think that you are doing something. You actually are doing something. You're influencing all of the policymakers and they craft policy to make online mobs like them more. So it, it really does matter. And so what you say online does matter. And um, I, I think that, you know, most of us have unfortunately absorbed this sense of stability from growing up at a basically stable time in the nineties. You know, it's like, it's like the it's people who are, who are coming up in the, in the eighties and the nineties are now running things and, 
we always thought things would be good and they would be good forever. And the truth is, I think, relatively speaking, they are pretty good right now um, with some really bad acts of censorship. And and they keep progressing. They're going to get worse and worse. Just the other day in the Washington Post, when Elon Musk bought his stake of Twitter, the Washington Post ran an op-ed by Alan Powell at the end of which she, this is the former CEO of Reddit, um, loathed on the platform and uh, just generally loathed, I think, by anybody who cares about freedom, um, loathed by anybody who cares about freedom. Uh, she concludes with her prescriptions for actual legal sort of a, a set of legal guidelines that would govern speech on platforms, actual legal censorship, right? Like we're, we're no longer beating around the bush. We're no longer, we're no longer saying, ah, it's not really censorship. It's not really political censorship, but we're actually having a conversation about in its purest sense is um, how to go about doing political censorship. It, the idea of political censorship as uh, a moral evil is no longer a universal idea. It's this is not a shared belief. Americans have forever in my life had a shared belief that was bipartisan that uh well free speech is is a is an absolute moral imperative. Um we often would not realize when we were kind of trying to censor the other guy, we would pretend to ourselves that we weren't, we would delude ourselves into thinking that we weren't. But if you actually, you know, gun to your head, you care about free speech, everyone would say yes. That's, it's just not the case anymore. That, that, that conversation has changed. And so all of this is a lot more dangerous. And that's why I'm so animated about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I read, I read the piece that you just published on Pirate, Pirate Wires. Thank you. Um, Piratewires.com. It was very good. Um, And you wrote that um, you thought free speech as a shared value is dead. And and that does seem to be true. I mean, people talk about free speech as though, you know, sometimes people will say, oh, yeah, I support free speech except for this, you know. Um, Totally, yeah, free speech, but not free speech about racism or something like that. And you, I just want to read a quote from your piece, actually, because I thought that it was good. You wrote, um, things like free speech maximalism or free speech absolutism are positions that don't exist. There's only free speech with proponents of liberty and detractors. If you are a proponent, let the detractors know that they're not. And and I thought that was good because I, I called myself a free speech absolutist because yeah. I Elon believe Musk in has, all free speech. Yeah, Elon Musk has done this as well. It's It's, it's interesting to me that like, the proponents of free speech have already internalized the new rules. That says to me that we're losing. Um, it, the fact that we're using that language says that the, the 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 terrain has already shifted out of our control, and you can't give up words. Like it's not a small thing. You have to force them to speak in honest terms. And um, and yeah, we have to abandon this the, the maximalism, maximalism, absolutism stuff. And, uh, and that's the language that our that critics use. It's like, it's, it's a classic sort of, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's being used to make us sound like crazy radicals when actually what we're asking for is what has existed for 250 years in, you know, the most powerful and emblematic example of freedom that human humans have ever known in, in history. Mm-hmm. And of course, when we're talking about free speech in the context of social media, free speech online, um, people will say that censorship is not censorship. So right. if you're talking about like demonet- demonetizing somebody's YouTube channel, for example, or banning somebody for tw- from Twitter, for example, um, they'll say, well, that's not being censored. You know, they can go somewhere else. Trump was banned from Twitter. He can go talk somewhere else. He has other platforms. He doesn't need Twitter. So you were demonetized on YouTube. You're not being censored. You can still say what you want. Do you think that this kind of thing constitutes an attack on free speech? Well, it is. It's an attack on free speech, the value of free speech, first of all. And censorship does not mean like we, we, I, people say this all the time. Yeah, it's, it's not censorship because you can leave or it's not censorship because Twitter is a private company. It is censorship. It's just legal censorship. It's still censored. You're still being censored. You're still being you're still being told you can't speak on you know one of the biggest speech platforms in the world. That's that is still happening. The question is not. And, and for me, the question is never whether or not it's legal. I get into so many debates with or not debates, but uh, sort of friendly arguments with libertarians about this because they always want to defend the giant social media platforms in this case and be like, well, 
it's not a violation of the First Amendment. It's like, okay, the more important question is whether or not significant censorship is happening. Okay, like what got us the First Amendment were a bunch of people who cared about free speech as a value. And if you care about free speech as a value, then separate from the law, which I'm not even certain we would lose, by the way, and I'll, I'll explain more in a second. But um, separate from the law, do you care? Do you, do you agree that this is a problem? And it is a, it is a huge problem, in, in my opinion. And uh, and and then on the, the legal stuff, it's like there actually are tons of it, it's ambiguous. We've first of all, we've never had massive oligopoly speech platforms that determine who can and cannot uh, garner enough attention to win elections before. That's a, we're in uncharted territory there. Um, and, and second, there are all of these cases in the 60s dealing with shopping centers, which I've just started dipping into and exploring all these Supreme Court cases where uh, young protesters wanted to protest at private malls. And because these were the de facto, the quote, de facto uh, town squares of, of their towns. And um, I thought that would have been an easy no. It was easy. Of course not. It's private property. You have to leave. Like, how does that even get taken to the court? But it did. And the students won. And the, you have a right to protest uh, on these malls. These are, there's precedent here. It's weird. The, the law is not settled. Um, so one, legally, it's not settled. Two, the more important thing is the value. Yes, you know, three, all of those things that you just mentioned, those are, they are censorship. And, uh, and for a while we would always get stuck in this question of, oh, well, is it legal or not? Um, and I would always say, okay, well, this is, this is beside the point. It's frustrating that we're even talking about it. Um, but you know, the more troubling thing since I would say these last couple of weeks that became just abundantly clear was that people were not even trying to hide behind a legal question anymore. Because remember forever, it was like, well, if you don't like the censorship on Twitter, go and build your own social media platform. Well, now Elon Musk is, you know, buying the social media platform and saying, we're going to do free speech. And the pro censorship people have lost their fucking minds. <laughs> and they're like, we have to stop this. What can we do to stop this? Um, the free speech people, the problem with them, myself, you know, I'm in this camp, obviously. Uh, they believe in things like principle and value and and are trying to have this very like libertarian argument about rights and the anti-free speech people are just doing whatever they can to get power. And at every turn, they're succeeding because they are playing to win. And, I, and it's like that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's like we got to do something. Right. I mean, and it's it's so strange because, I mean, we saw what happened with Joe Rogan. I mean, they tried so, so, so hard to censor him and ban him. And it hasn't worked, thank goodness. But I didn't even understand. I was like, "What is? Why do these people hate Joe Rogan so much? Why is that? Why is their focus Joe Rogan? Why are they trying to get Joe Rogan? You know, you could just argue, <clears throat> excuse me, the same thing that they're arguing, which is like, okay, you don't like Joe Rogan's podcast. You don't have to listen to his podcast. Why don't you start your own podcast? Right. Like yeah. I don't. Sorry. Well, I mean, it's just because they 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 know that everyone listens to him. It's, I mean, it's the same reason that people are talking about people met about Fox news forever. Since I was in college, it was like, well, should we just get rid of Fox news? You know, it's not real new. It's not quote real news. It's not the truth, whatever. Um, this happened with talk radio. There's always a fear. I mean, let's just call a spade a spade, right? It's like, it is always coming from the left. It's being applied to the right. It's when, when right wing voices become too, big or things perceived as right-wing voices become too big. Um, there's this argument that they should be shut down, that, uh, that the average person can't do, they can't think for themselves. Basically we're, we're all just victims to Joe Rogan. He's this, this, uh, this mesmerist to go back to an earlier conversation he, that, we, that we were having. He, he's just passes all in a trance and um, you know, his platform's so gigantic that it, he's like a danger to society. Um, and well, and he's, he's spreading misinformation and, uh, you know, he's anti-science. I'm, this is what they're saying. I don't believe this to be true, but you know, it's like, first of all, you know, they're talking about his guests. They're not really talking about things he believes he does having guests on that they believe are spreading misinformation or who are anti-science or who are, you know, sharing information that they don't like. But this sort of comes back to what you mentioned earlier, which is that, What's the truth? Like these people get to dictate what's science and what's not science 
And that's not true. What they're saying is science and is not science is accurate. It's like, well, this is science too. It's just that this science contradicts the science that you want to believe in. Yeah, I mean, believe science is not a very scientific phrase. This is a trite point at this point, but I, I think it's like the, it's it's important and valid. When anyone is talking about the science, what you have to be talking about is every piece of available data. I don't watch a lot of Joe Rogan, but what I, I do, I've seen a few episodes. And one thing I've noticed in the few that I've seen is he, he always is looking up terms and things in the middle of a podcast, which I love. I think, I think he's always going, he's like, well, what is the... Okay, we don't know that for sure. Let's look it up really quick. And they look it up and they, you know, look at the different studies. And I, it seems honestly, it's also such a, this is such a huge pressure to put on a single human being. Yeah. Um, the idea that you have to be right, quote, right, like every second of a conversation. No one is that. We, like, no one is that. Uh, that's just not the way that that uh that we're built we're not machines we're people and we kind of we kind of say things out loud to see how they feel and you backtrack and you change your mind and all of that's fine that's what human beings do uh i I think the the thing now is joe has such an enormous audience that it's any popular controversial voices were always you know really i mean the crosshairs were on them at least in my lifetime, I think Joe is uniquely popular because of the nature of the internet. People can become much bigger. They can become much more influential. They can become much more influential, much more quickly. They now have direct access to their audiences. You can monetize really easily. So these people are not just random voices. They're making a lot of money. Uh, that is going to constitute real power in the decades to come. And maybe people are just kind of correctly looking at if I mean, if you don't agree with the things that Joe is talking that Rogan's talking about, you kind of correctly intuit him as a, as a future threat to your values or whatever. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think I'll, I know you have to get going soon, so I'll try to not keep you much longer, but I w I'm interested in the idea of punishing people financially for the things that they say, because again, it will be defended on the basis that like, well, you're not removing the platform but if people are getting demonetized or, for example, if they no longer have access to PayPal or even to banks, that's a pretty serious punishment. Um, I suppose I wonder if you think something like demonetization is ever justified. I just I literally just got this email today in my inbox from Google AdSense, which is how you get paid via YouTube if you make money off of your YouTube videos via ads. Um, and it says important notice update regarding Ukraine. Dear publisher, due to the war in Ukraine, we will pause monetization of content that exploits, dismisses, or condones the war. Um, please note... That's crazy if you can demonetize... For, so I, I mean, I know there's a sort of support the current thing meme going around, but I'm, I think what Russia's doing is horrific. Um, you should absolutely be allowed to dismiss people like you, you should be allowed to criticize caring about this. That's that it's, a, it's insane to me. And yeah, I mean, demonetization is a huge problem. Uh, it's a way, I think it's a way bigger problem. Bank, bank losing banking is a way bigger problem than people being erased from Twitter or whatever. Uh, and we, yeah, we've seen all sorts of examples of this um, in Canada during the trucking stuff. You saw this, the, 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 the effect that a government can have on, on banking. Um, we saw under the Trump situation back when he was deplatformed uh, in Jan was, I think it was January of 2021. Is that right? I think when he was deplatformed. Um, exactly. But yeah, it must've been, it was around the so-called insurrection. It was so a it full been around January, yeah. He lost social, every social media channel, but he also lost monetization and he also lost, mm -hmm. I believe he lost Stripe. Like he lost payments. He lost for that moment in time, he was well and truly, I mean, he, I don't know that he actually, he didn't lose his actual banks, but, but he lost his ability to make money from his supporters. So it, it was a political action. It was to stop him from being politically dangerous. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very big deal. I mean, you have a lot of people who would say Bitcoin solves this. And I don't know that we have the infrastructure yet for that to be the case. I do know that that's the way that it's going. And that's why people hate Bitcoin so much. Mm. Bitcoin is an anti-authoritarian tool at the end of the day. It was designed for this reason. It was designed 
sort of seeing this coming. People were, and it's funny to think about because 15 years ago, I don't know, I, I would not have, I was much more optimistic than I am now. And I would, I genuinely would not have seen this coming. And, uh, but the Bitcoin people did, thank God. And they tried to architect a financial instrument that was totally decentralized and would, you know, create a world in which you could never be demonetized. You, you would always have access to, to finances and no one could take that away from you. Um, and I, I mean, I hope it works out. It can't be destroyed as it is. Uh, you can, I think the government can make it very, very, very difficult for us to use crypto. Um, but that is a How would they do that? Well, um, I mean, I think you could just start by saying like, if you're holding it, you know, it's illegal. It's illegal to hold it. You just say that. You mm -hmm. could say you could you could you could refuse to allow people to uh, send large. I mean, how are you going to buy? You have to buy it with cash. So, uh, where does the cash come from? It's sitting in a bank. So you can't remove cash from your bank to to buy crypto. More importantly, if you've sold crypto, you can't put that cash in your bank or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, like I, I think Bitcoin is not. It's not anonymous. It's sort of pseudonymous. You have a number associated with you and you can follow where it goes. People do this all the time. So it's actually not super easy to evade taxes and things like this. Um, people, could tr people can trace Bitcoin to you eventually. That will happen. And then depending on how severe the punishment is, you could, you could disincentivize that. But I think those even a few measures would be enough to, to keep people. It would make it very difficult for people to use cryptocurrency in, in an effective sort of daily way. Right. Um, finally, uh, I'm curious to know what you think the impact will be actually of Elon Musk becoming Twitter's biggest shareholder. I think at this point, nobody knows. I, I, I was confident last week before he declined to join the board. He had been invited to join the board. He, did, he and In between his, his being invited and him, and him declining, he said he was excited and Jack said he was excited. Uh, Parag, the CEO, said he was excited. I thought... Yes, yeah, three of 11 people on the board. I think it's 11. Um, I thought that they would have a lot of power. Uh, they would definitely have a lot of social capital. Everyone wants Elon to like them. I think that, you know, he could just invite them all over to dinner and get what he wants pretty much. Now, I don't know. Uh, his declining could mean one of two things. He just doesn't care that much. He got bored. He's just going to sit on this stock and do nothing. That seems crazy to me. Um, but then again, you know, he's worth a quarter trillion dollars. What is a few billion to him? A lot to us. So it's inconceivable. Maybe it's not a big deal to him. Or is he going to be much more aggressive now? Is he going to buy a lot more? And is he going to try and take power the sort of exciting way? <laughs> and um, <laughs> An insurrection. <laughs> I think, I mean, it wouldn't be. It's just like, it's just what people have been telling us for years. People who didn't, I mean, we didn't like the censorship. They're like, well, it's a free market. If you don't like it, you know, then, then, then go and build your own thing. It's like, well, it's a free market. And the other solution is not building a new thing, but buying the thing. And Elon could just buy it. And if he, if he does that, then I do believe that Twitter will be a very safe place for people who don't like safe spaces. Um, I think that it will become much more free speech oriented in terms of uh, the really scary, dangerous things like threats of death and like child porn and shit, none of that's going to be, none of that's legal as it is. None of that's legal mm -hmm. in America. I think that you're, you're going to see if Elon truly does take control, you'll see an environment that it just maps to the U S law. I think that that's what I believe. Um, that's, but the, the question of what's happening right now, I think nobody knows, but Elon, cause it's, it is, it has been very weird. It was a shocking that he bought the stock. It was shocking that he was invited to join the board. It was shocking, really shocking that he then declined to join the board. So, um, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I just know that if he does take power, it'll be a much better place. Yeah, that'll be great. <laughs> um, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It was really awesome to talk with you. I hope we get to connect again in the future sometime. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. I'm Megan Murphy, host of The Same Drugs. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a patron on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash Megan Murphy. This allows you to access special content, early access to episodes, and weekly private live streams. Alternatively, you can support this podcast directly on anchor.fm via the support button. 
I produce and host this podcast all by myself and have no major funders, advertisers, institutional support, grants, or sponsors. It is all me and you, the listener. You can donate any amount you like from $5 a month to $20 to $100 or more or less. It all counts. Thank you so much for supporting Conversations Outside the Algorithm.